This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at our favorite horror movies from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So, what is on the examination table for this episode? Now look, I've loved getting into the wide array of older films that we've covered here, but I think a delightful change of pace is in order. But change can require a little bit of ease, so a compromise. Let's get into a super new film, but let's have it set in 1918. But with war and a pandemic as a backdrop, just for that sense of familiarity, comfort. You guessed it. We are talking about 2022's Pearl, the follow-up or prequel to... 2022's X. So I'm really excited to talk about this one, but I am not alone. To cover a film like this, I need a gift of a guest. And I cannot tell you how lucky I've been to have lovely guests here on the pod. But to really get into the, I think, complexities of Pearl, I have called on Mike Snoonian one of the co-hosts from Psychoanalysis and the man, the myth, the legend behind Pod and the Pendulum. I've mentioned both of these pods with some frequency here. Mike is one of the kindest, sweetest, generous, smartest folks. I'll never understand how I have the fortune to know, and I'm thrilled that you could join me. Welcome, Mike. I can't believe you would start by lying. To your audience like this. Can't believe it. No, you're too kind, Nicole. And it's a pleasure to guest. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So awesome. Well, it seems that it was only right. Y'all have been so great to have me on both psychoanalysis and pod and the pendulum to uh, you know, rant incoherently about everything oh, from Children of the Corn, Basket Case, and the Purge films. So um, I'm really, really thrilled to have you here. And of course, towards the end, uh, you'll be able to talk a little bit about those podcasts, what's on the schedule, and, uh, you know, just in case some folks haven't checked them out, even though I've mentioned that pretty much required listening, um, you know, it's always helpful to get that extra prod. All right, so what I'm going to do a little bit differently, instead of doing the trailer, I like, you know, breaking it up, but I have a guess. We have to make the most of our time here. So I want to dig in to the plot synopsis, as always, issued from our near and dear friend at Wikipedia. So in 1918, during the influenza pandemic, Pearl is a young woman living with her German immigrant parents on their Texas homestead, while her husband, Howard, serves in World War I. Pearl's father is infirm and paralyzed, 
and her domineering mother, Ruth, insist that she help care for both him and the farm. Pearl, longing for a more exciting life, is captivated by the film she sees at the local cinema and aspires to become a chorus girl, much to Ruth's disapproval. However, Pearl also shows signs of being a fairly disturbed individual. For example, she does your standard issued, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, serial killer uh, move by killing farm animals and also physically abuses her father who is in her care. And that's not even, doesn't even get consent from that scarecrow either. Oh, we'll talk about that. Uh, At the movie theater, Pearl meets a young projectionist who takes a liking to her. While riding her bicycle home, Pearl stops along a cornfield and begins dancing with a scarecrow, fantasizing about the projectionist and masturbates with it. Again, to Mike's point, no consent. Nope. When her mother realizes that eight cents are missing from an errand Pearl did, Pearl is berated about being careless and has her supper withheld. Pearl's affluent sister-in-law, Mitzi, so this would be Howard's family, uh, tells her of an audition being held to find a new dancer, uh, find new dancers for a traveling troupe, which Pearl envisions as a way out of her circumstance. She later sneaks out of the house at night and visits the projectionist who shows her a free ride, an illicit stag film he acquired in France. He encourages Pearl to pursue her dreams. Pearl comments that she cannot abandon her family and that she wishes they would just die. When Ruth finds a program Pearl took from the movie theater, the two get into a fierce argument over dinner. A physical altercation erupts, during which Pearl shoves her mother against the kitchen hearth, igniting her dress and resulting in Ruth suffering life-threatening burns. Pearl drags Ruth into the basement and leaves her father seated in the kitchen. She flees to the movie theater where she has sex with the projectionist. In the morning, the projectionist drives Pearl back to the farm so she can prepare for the audition. He is perturbed by a now maggot-infested roasted pig Mitzi's mother had left for Ruth the day prior, and by inconsistencies Pearl has told him, aka that noise that you hear, that's actually my mom, uh, I'm going to tell you it's a dog and then lie and actually call myself out and let you know that I, I don't have a dog. Um, <clears throat> but Pearl, uh, as well as kind of she gets into some theatrical kind of over-the-top behaviors. When he attempts to leave, Pearl flies into a fit of rage at his abandonment of her and stabs him to death with a pitchfork before pushing his car with his corpse in it into a pond where an alligator she has nicknamed Theta uh, eats his <laughs> remains. Pearl dresses herself in one of Ruth's lavish gowns, kind of a callback to the intro of the film where we see uh, her putting on some of her mom's nice uh, gear and kind of fantasizing uh, about being in the movies. Uh, and she dresses and she takes care of her father and then smothers him. To that before she leaves for the audition. Pearl arrives at the church where the audition is being held. She gives a dance performance she feels will win over the talent scouts, but is devastated when she's 
rejected for not being young, blonde, or all-American. Mitzi accompanies her, her home in an attempt to console her because she's completely, um, you know, kind of a wreck. She's sobbing when Mitzi finds her after her audition. In the kitchen, when they get home, Pearl makes a lengthy confession to Mitzi about her resentment towards Howard and how he came from a privileged background, but insisted that they remain on her family's farm and admits that she was relieved when she miscarried his child. She further confesses her feelings of alienation and insecurity, her joy in acts of harm, and to taking the lives of her parents and the projectionist. Pearl then manipulates a stunned Mitzi into confessing that she won the audition over Pearl. Jealous that Mitzi won the audition, Pearl chases her down the driveway and kills her with an axe. Pearl dismembers uh, Mitzi's body and feeds her corpse to Theta before going into the basement and lying with a deceased Ruth, concluding that her mother was correct and that Pearl should make the best of what she has. She decides to remediate her wrongdoings by uh, creating a comfortable home for Howard when he returns from war. The next morning, Howard arrives unexpectedly in the kitchen. He is horrified to find the bodies of Pearl's parents seated at the dining table around the rotting pig. Pearl greets him with a protracted and pained smile. That, yeah, that is Pearl. Um, I, I, I mean, no little synopsis, I think, is really going to nail, I think, just how, I think, powerful Mia Goth's performance is in the movie. Uh, you see just kind of like this escalation, this panic, this desperation in the character. Um, and then I think the whole ending, starting with, you know, that very lengthy monologue, I think it's like seven plus minutes uh, where she's, you know, really laying everything out for Mitzi um, is just, I think, an all-timer. I think it's something that will, you know, make lists uh, for forever. And then, of course, the iconic ending of just Pearl, you know, smiling yeah. and while tears are starting to fall. It's a wonderful send up of like classic Hollywood, like your lavish blockbuster productions of the late thirties, early forties, like that escapist entertainment um, that Hollywood cranked out, like during the great depression and the war years. And you have like that smile at the end would be your typical, like capture this. And this is going to be like the go home shot of the movie. And, And it would be like, the happy note to send your audience home on. And here it's so forced and painful and so long. Like at one point she has to stop because she can't physically hold that rictus grin for that long without it being excruciating, I'm sure. And it is also the way the, the credits basically then close in. Like you start, you see like her face captured in a circle and then like the blackness just kind of closes in on it until you get your typical black screen rolling credits. It's just what an ending. 
absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, that small break that we see in her is just also really perfect because I think it just, I think at the end, we're supposed to really feel that she's made kind of this commitment to put on, you know, that this is going to be her performance, that she is going to try to be what Howard wants. Um, and then we, of course, fast forward to the events in X and we see how that has turned out gangbusters for both of them. Um, so um, it's it's really great. A couple of just background things before we really get into, I think, some interesting themes in the film and why I wanted to talk about it and why I wanted Mike uh, to, to talk about it as well is that this is a pandemic movie, but kind of unique in that uh, the team, Ty West and his crew, uh, you know, a I think a pretty bare bones crew uh, shot X and then making the most of their quarantine time, uh, but kind of built off of some of the character work that he and Mia had done to build Pearl for X. And so, well, we have the time we have all of this stuff like at our disposal let's just make a movie and um you know they had the benefit of also working with the avatar way of water uh crew who were kind of on a break and you know again following covid protocols they were all able to kind of work together so um it's an interesting thing in that you know, just like X pretty much takes place in one setting in the house on the homestead, so does Pearl. Um, so everything is really bare bones, but I think they really maximize kind of the feel and the scope of the film. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that kind of ties into talking about the first kind of theme, which is the pandemic because the pandemic is obviously a piece of the stories taking place during the uh, onset of the 1918 influenza pandemic. And so I wanted to just give, um, you know, some background to that, just so that, you know, there's some context of time. And then maybe, you know, we can talk about how the pandemic kind of plays out in the film comparisons to what we've experienced um you know going through COVID-19 and you know how it kind of impacts uh Pearl and her family so the 1918 pandemic so the origins are hard to pin down but cases in the U.S. were first were first reported in March 1918 at a military base in Fort Riley uh, it starts with an outbreak of 100 soldiers uh, with the flu, and suddenly we see the number of flu cases quintuple. So the first public nod to the growing pandemic uh, is in a public health report or bulletin released the following month, and it's detailing 18 severe cases of the flu and three deaths in Haskell, Kansas. But lest we forget World War One, and it, it, it is World War One. We have hundreds of thousands of soldiers are being deployed 
overseas. And obviously this is starting to take foot at military bases. So a second highly fatal wave, this is considered the most fatal wave of this pandemic hits. Uh, this time jumping off in Boston. And cases first emerge in Camp Devons. And this is taking place, uh, I think, starting around September. So we see cases popping up in March, in April. People are kind of like, oh, flu, what's going on? So we fast forward to September and we're starting to get into that second wave. And like I said, the most fatal. So uh, it's jumping off in Boston. Cases are first emerging at Camp Devons, an army training camp outside of Boston and a naval facility uh, roughly in the same area. Now let's talk about numbers. Within the month of September alone, Camp Devon reports more than 14,000 cases of the flu, which is I think like a quarter of the total camp and 757 deaths. So during this time, uh, we're starting to also see nursing, nursing staff shortaging. This is becoming a huge pain point because a large number of nurses are being deployed to US military camps here and abroad. And there's also good old racism. Um, you know, there's a lack of utilizing uh, trained nurses of color. So October is when we first start to see cities like Chicago implementing things like a mask mandate, having to have a face covering, in, you know, indoors in public, and uh, closing public venues like theaters and movie houses, and prohibiting public gatherings. So this, again, we're starting, you know, there's this bulletin that comes out in April, and now we're in October. Now we're starting to see some of these um, kind of precautions uh, being implemented. The war ends in November 1918, and the size of the military during this time had grown from roughly 378,000 soldiers to 4.7 million soldiers in less than that year. And the end of the war itself uh, contributes to a resurgence of the flu because you have uh, people celebrating Armistice Day and, of course, soldiers returning from deployment. And that takes us into the third wave uh, of the flu that takes place in January 1919. This is a fairly short, um, I guess, arm um, or wave of the pandemic. We start to see cases you know, go down fairly quickly after that. And it's considered kind of eradicated by summer, but, you know, even by mid to late spring, you know, everything kind of returned to normal. So um, that's just a little bit of history. All of this came from the CDC. Um, the CDC also has a really amazing just breakdown of timeline. Um, it also includes, you know, uh, how... Uh, folks were being deployed early on in World War One. So um, let's talk about the correlation to current day pandemic and how we, well, first off, how do we see the pandemic uh, kind of taking place 
in this film? What are the nods, the, the recognitions to the pandemic? Well, well I think a big difference is with the 1918-1919 flu, everyone is kind of on the same page. There's a lot more trust in the government and health agencies, and there is a general feeling that we're all in this together. Like it's much less of like a red blue country where you see blue states saying, okay, let's mask up, let's isolate, let's get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And the red states saying, I would rather die than wear a piece of cloth against my face because you are taking away my freedom and my, uh, and I don't owe it to anybody else to uh, protect anybody. So I think that's a big difference right away. Like we're looking at, at the 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 kind of comparing the two there's a, a greater sense of community in the night what we would see in the uh influenza yeah that's i think that's absolutely fair i think one of the things that's really interesting because i think this film takes place like the timeline of the film itself takes place over a fairly, I think, short period of time. About a week. Yeah. But what I found really interesting um, is that even though there are, you know, these precautions, especially, um, you know, with uh, Pearl's father and her mother being really strict about, okay, you're going to go in and you're going to go get medicine. Here's your money. Wear a mask stay you know keep yourself distanced don't like linger in crowds and i think one of the things that stood out to me is that girl kind of she does these things she wears her mask she does go to the movie but she's wearing her mask she only like takes it off for a minute to take a sip off her dad's liquid morphine Mm -hmm. and i you know i think it goes to what you're saying is that there is like this you know trust <laughs> this trust and this kind of onus on ourselves as individuals to be like all right well we don't know what's going on and we have to do what we can to keep ourselves and others safe so yeah that was something that really stood out to me and you also have then when ruth discovers that pearl had gone to the movie she's really mad because she's like, you have, like, it's not just that I'm mad that you, what I feel like have wasted money and time. You did something that could potentially put us at risk and especially your dad. Um, so, um, you know, we see, we see that. And of course, I think this is an interesting way to acknowledge that you know there are still precautions being taken during the time of the shooting and so it all kind of i think is is an interesting thing um now i want to talk a little bit about the isolation one of the things that really stands out to me is that pearl her mom and her dad are isolated uh there's no one helping out on the homestead typically when you have you know they have a pretty substantial 
home, we see a little bit more of, I think, the scope in X. And you would have, you know, folks that would come and help out on the land, uh, especially if it's just two people that are able to go out and do that kind of work. And there isn't anyone. It's well, just... you get... Sorry. Go ahead. You get the feeling that the workers are either at war because it would all been like male farmhands. So they're either at war like Howard is, or they've been sent away from the farm as a precautionary measure due to the uh, in, due to the flu. Yeah. So it's now down to Pearl and Ruth to manage this like sizable estate completely on their own. Yeah. And I think also, you know, caring for Ruth's husband, Pearl's dad, um, you know, having to figure out, you know, what are the safe ways that we can get the care that he needs from the medicine. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about caregiving in a pandemic, because obviously that's kind of, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about uh, the film here. But um, I think also one of the things that was mentioned a little bit in the CDC information was that you were starting, I think, in the second wave, you know, where a lot of the um, cases of flu could be traced back to these military bases. Um, in the second wave, as it was spreading farther and farther, um, you were starting to see, you know, workplaces be shut down because everyone was sick um, or, you know, only two people weren't sick and they had to protect everyone. So it was taking, uh, I think, a toll to your point in that way. Um, but I think that, you know, the isolation um is really is really strong. It's a huge theme in the film because I think both Ruth and Pearl talk about that feeling of loneliness and being isolated. To a, a degree that isolation is self-imposed. We yeah. have the scene where Mitzi and her mother like they deliver like a nice like baked ham like or a baked pig uh for to uh Ruth and Pearl and Ruth like rebuffs their gesture like and you hear her say like we don't accept charity and it's not that it's even charity it is like their family like they have um their children are married at this point so it's really no different than like bringing a dish to eat like at a Sunday dinner you know mm -hmm. and they could very much be they could very much communicate or or um socialize with one another but like ruth is like very standoffish and chooses to be isolated and partly out of like a fear for her husband's health but i, I don't know. think that's completely it i think that she's very weary of everyone around her and there's something almost like calvinistic about the way that she is approaching this and that like she feels this is her burden uh, to bear at this point and she wants to she feels like she almost wants to take on suffering at times yeah I think that's incredibly uh incredibly apt and I think you had put in the notes um you know talking about Ruth's experience as an immigrant because this is a German immigrant family and there's I think a lot of ties to 
to that, she makes, you know, a mention about, you know, how the community looks at them and keeping their heads down and really kind of, again, doubling down on that isolation so that people don't think that they're an issue, especially during World War One. So yeah, I, I the the isolation thing is is interesting. And I also find it, you know, kind of sad in a way because that seems to be the one element or an element that Pearl at the very end when she's giving her monologue to Mitzi she kind of reflects back on and is like wow my mom was just doing what she could she she you know she was rough but she had a rough life so it, that isolation that feeling of separation you know, obviously, yes, part of it uh, out of precautions, um, but also some, I think, by choice because of other factors. Um, we talked a little bit about protecting those at high risk in the pandemic. And we see this with uh, Pearl's dad when they find out that she's gone to the movie. I think the mom makes her sleep out in the barn because um, she's afraid that she's going to, you know, contaminate the home. And um, you get a sense that, you know, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we talk about caregiving, but it also speaks to, I think, something that you said, which is the sense of burden of, you know, this isn't the life that I want to live, but I'm doing it because of this, because we have to protect your father. You know, this is why we have to live this way. And if you don't understand it, then you're the problem. Um, so I I find that really inter <laughs> interesting. And again, Pearl doesn't really have an issue with any of this. She wants to protect her father. She does, you know, she does get abusive with him um, in the scenes with, you know, her and him in the bath, I think are, you know, I think underscore a really interesting relationship of we don't know how long her father has been in this particular state, um, how his condition has progressed. And we don't know what their relationship was like um, at you know a previous point in time. Pearl does seem to have a fondness um, and a care for her father. Uh, she feels true guilt, I think, you know, at the end when she's talking to Missy about how she's killed him, she feels awful. She says he didn't deserve that. That was bad. But, you know, I wanted, you know, the projectionist and my mom to suffer to no pain like I've known pain. And so I think that... Um, you know, we do see, I guess, you know, just the family really hunkering down to protect kind of the the patriarch and something that I think a lot of folks can experience, especially early on in the pandemic. Lots of folks were uh, choosing to, you know, if you had a loved one that lived far away from you, that you were kind of responsible for some level of care. You have a loved one that was in, you know, an assisted living facility of some kind. Lots of folks 
or, um, you know, choosing to have those folks live with them, um, having their loved ones live with them so that they could be safe and that they could take on that care. But then it creates that extra burden because suddenly I'm having to juggle working from home, caring for my loved one, doing things that I may not be used to, trained, et cetera. And having, you know, that in-home support is not available um, or at best risky. So what do you do? Um, so the protecting, uh, protecting those at high risk, I think is something that does come up a couple of times in the film. And I think is something that kind of is seen as a bit of glue to keep the family homebound a bit. So I do want to just mention kind of the social stigma just because when I was watching it, I found um, the line from the projectionist when he first is talking to Pearl, he sees her in the alleyway as she's leaving the theater and he offers her a cigarette and he's like, oh, don't worry, I don't have the bug. Um, so I guess in the film, did you know, because I think especially early on in the pandemic, there was a social there was a stigma around having COVID. If you had COVID, um, you know, did you do something risky? Did you? Why did you break the rules? Exactly. And so I, I, it was interesting to see it play out differently, but that you didn't really see that kind of social stigma. Um, you know, going back to what we talked about with Ruth, kind of kicking Pearl out when she thinks that she's done something that could cause additional uh, risk, uh, there's still not necessarily that stigma. So I found that really interesting. And I think indicative of how, you know, even though there's a lot of similarities and through lines to these pandemics, a lot of differences too. Yeah, there is some fear. There is the scene uh, when before Pearl launches into her monologue, she tells Mitzi, I don't feel well. And Mitzi does like a full body recoil. She's like, whoa, like, don't tell me that you're sick because I can't go home after kind of like sneaking out. I can't go home and then get my family sick. Like she's afraid in that moment that um, Pearl is going to give her something. So you do see, um, you do see moments like that. And, you know, Pearl has already been, home for a couple days before her mother finds like the um uh movie bill mm -hmm. in her hat and she's obviously not suffering any ill effects and her mother still makes her sleep out in the bunkhouse which i think is that kind of like cabin that the crew members all stay at in x yeah um, and she's like well too bad like even though there's nothing wrong with you i'm making you stay out there it's like an overabundance of precaution it's almost more like a punishment than anything else no for sure and i'm glad that you you talked about the fear and mistrust it's not something that you see a ton but it's definitely there um and yeah that moment with mitzi um is interesting but you know mitzi is someone who seems completely kind of unfazed by what's going on around 
uh, her, you know, her and her mom are going around to different family members, I guess, in the area and dropping off pigs and, and supplies. And she's going to this audition. Um, I think she talks about going somewhere else. So, um, yeah, it, it it's definitely an interesting moment when she does that recoil yeah. with Coral. Well, Mitzi and her mother are coming from a place of wealth and privilege. It's the life that Pearl very much wants to lead. And it's why in her monologue, she reveals like she kind of hid her true self from Howard to a certain extent because she didn't want Howard to see what everybody else has seen once they spend too much time with Pearl up close and personal, that kind of like broken thing that resides inside of her. And Howard kind of rejects that life of wealth and privilege and comfort, uh, which is part of why Pearl feels so resentful towards him. Like it's one of the major underpinnings, but Mitzi and her mom kind of get to ride out the pandemic in style. Like they have an automobile. Pearl has to get to and from town on her bicycle. You notice like the, the, street into town there it's you know it's the early early days of the automobile it would have been a tremendous luxury still to have that um their lives aren't that we saw this during the lockdowns of our own pandemic like the more creature comforts you were able to have the more you were able to kind of like ride that wave out and if you were someone who maybe lived uh in poverty we saw when schools went back to, uh, or schools went to full remote. It's like if you didn't have good Wi-Fi where you could stream all day, yeah. your education was suffered. You were living in cramped conditions. You didn't maybe have access to like, like we did a lot of hikes and we baked a lot of bread and we did a lot of board games and watched movies and read books and took our dogs on walk because we live a fairly comfortable middle-class life and we're very fortunate to do so but i know where i work like how many kids and families suffered because they were in very cramped conditions and those walls kind of closed in and they didn't have access to the same creature comforts that i did no that's i think a, a really great observation and i think it also then goes back to caregiving you know they had you know that that is something else that they that they're taking on that Missy's family doesn't have. You know they don't have someone at home that may be high risk. Um, because one of the interesting things that I noticed in kind of reading up about the nineteen eighteen pandemic is that the folks that were I think most impacted, um, kind of I guess considered more of the high risk groups, were young infants young children um then i think it was like zero to five um and then 20 to 40 year olds uh so young adults uh were considered kind of a high-risk group and then you would have your uh older individuals and obviously i think those that um had underlying issues although it's really important for us to kind of keep in mind that our our knowledge of that stuff is so different today than it would have been at that point in time. So, you know, that's why like some of this information is really interesting to look at because, you, you know, just within like the last 20 years, 
we are finally understanding kind of what a brain does, what it looks like, because it was in a school and we we didn't have access to it. But now because of advancements, we can really have that full picture. Um, so yeah, the so the information is kind of hit and miss in terms of how we can connect it. But um, yeah, really interesting things about how, you know, even in this time, their creature comforts, <laughs> their privilege and their access to various things, uh, you know, made their, I guess, kind of writing things out much easier um, in a lot of different ways. So let's <laughs> focus in on the mental health impacts of the pandemic. Now, Mike, I know this is really kind of your wheelhouse in talking about kind of the mental health rigmarole of it all. And I know that on psychoanalysis, you have kind of covered films that dig into kind of the experience of the pandemic and touching on some of these impacts. But I wanted to know if you wanted to talk a little bit about where you see like the mental health impacts of the pandemic kind of. Sure. So I would argue that like generally we're social animals and yes, there are, there's like even persons that are prone to like being introverts to a certain degree, like do need to kind of interact with other persons. And overall, as a species, we tend to be social animals. We put a lot into our rituals. We put a lot into our holidays. We put a lot into like friend and family gatherings. Um, it's a reason why one of the interesting things coming out of this pandemic is realizing how much we don't need office culture uh, and how little it was missed and why there's such a huge fight to maybe stay working from home. Um, but because we we figured like, oh, the office is where we go because we see our work friends and we kind of gather around the water cooler and chat about our days and our lives. And it's part of what I like about working in a school is having like the teachers and other counselors that I work with and my colleagues like sharing bits of our day or just having a bad day and maybe grabbing a couple kids and just kind of chatting with them for a little bit. Like I enjoy that, like the social interaction of those things and those rituals that we have. Um, and even for those that are introverted, we see like with social media, like it's so easy to kind of expand the scope of your friendships. Like I, I would argue now that I have a lot of dear friends that I've never physically been in the same room with, but have shared like countless like intimate conversations with them over the past few years, because we now have these platforms that kind of allow us the ability to do so, which we couldn't do before. And what you see here in Pearl is this isolation from the rest of the world has done Pearl no favors. Um, it's not the cause of her, it's not the cause of like her kind of antisocial behaviors, but I think it's accelerated them. So her mother speaks about for years, she's seen Pearl do things like the harming of animals. And this movie is on a very accelerated timeline. Like you're basically watching one week in her life where everything comes to a head. But I think you could make a clear connection between that continued isolation. Also like the drudgery of her day, like pretty much every day is the same. 
You mm-hmm. get up, you do the you throw on those overalls, which I just want to say for the record, my favorite look on a attractive woman is overalls. I don't know what it is. Well, it's and it's for this 25 seems, years, but oh. And this seems to be a connection to X, right? We also mm-hmm. have some iconic overall look there. Same character, well, same performer, mm-hmm. different character. Um, but every day that she's throwing on like the overalls and kerchief, and she's spending all of her time with her animals. Um, her and her mother have nothing in common. Her mother is cold to the point of cruelty with Pearl. And I think we can talk about how her mother infantilizes Pearl as well in this movie. Yeah. Um I think we definitely need to maybe hit on that if there's some time. And all of these things, that isolation, that and that glimmer of hope that there's an out. Uh, and there's two glimmers of hope. There's two pathways for her in this movie. There's the projectionist who he never says he's taking her to Europe. She just assumes that she's mm-hmm. going to take he's going to take her to Europe. And then there's this dance troupe that's going to travel the state and maybe beyond when the glimmer of hope is snuffed out that she's going to have an out um you see she just snaps at that point like everything comes to her breaking point and she goes all smurderous in wonderful fashion yeah no that's true because i mean she her i think her her first glimpse of a, a different life was with Howard but Howard said uh actually no um I want to stay put I I want to be like I I want to take over the farm I want like I want this life and to what you said I think earlier Pearl kind of had to present herself as someone different as wanting something different to Howard and the impact that that probably had over time, um, you know, probably made it harder. Whenever you're trying to put on an act for someone, it becomes exhausting. It takes so much mental energy to pretend to be someone that you're not. Exactly. So, yeah, I her viciousness with the projectionist is so great because she, you know... It, like she says at the end, she wants him to suffer the way she has known suffering to some degree. And he kind of has a life that she's intrigued by. He's kind of a, you know, vagabond in a lot of ways. He just kind of goes from place to place when he can get a job. He sleeps at the theater. Um, and she's intrigued by this. She's intrigued by kind of like this this interesting kind of different life that's away from the farm. And then when he's like, "Mm, no, this is a lot in a very short time for me. And I just was interested in getting laid. He. (laughs) Have you ever had an experience like that when you've like dated someone and you have like, you have that instant physical connection and you can't, and you're like, all right, here we go, good times. And then immediately they show their real face, and you're like, ooh, I've really stepped in it. Like, this is a bit too much. How do I back myself out of this? Oh, yeah. 
And I'm sure that people on the flip side can maybe say the same thing mm -hmm. about me. Like, hey, that was a good time. And then the next morning, wow, was that different? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that that's something that, you know, we're, you know, in talking about kind of the relationship elements of it, the romantic relationships element elements of it, we don't really get a ton of background about Pearl and Howard's relationship. We don't know if, you know, they dated for a period of time, if it was kind of a, you know, they met, they, <laughs> they quickly fell in love. Pearl kind of attached herself to him uh, because she saw him as an avenue out. He came from a really rich family um, and she, she assumed that she would be kind of taking uh, root kind of on his turf. Instead, he's like, no, I'm going to live at the farm and I just want to work on the farm and not yeah. have access to these things. And yeah. this is the life. Um, and it's interesting watching this after watching X and then watching X again, because like Howard is very much a caregiver for Pearl in X. Like he is very much team Pearl and very much looking out for her throughout yeah. the movie. And they have like a very loving relationship like that is one of the great things about x and why i love that movie so much is like the two of them love each other deeply so in between the start of x and the end of this movie where howard comes home and as one would imagine like looks at that scene in abject terror and is gonna discover that like she also murdered his sister like, that's going to come out at some point. I don't want to be around that Thanksgiving dinner yeah. later on with um, her mother-in-law um, when all this comes out. But somewhere along the way, he forgave her and said, this is okay because you're the one I want. Yeah. And this is a good, I think, segue to really, because you have a note here about talking about Pearl's monologue. Mm -hmm. Pearl's monologue is it, it's truly amazing um and like i said i don't think like any kind of description of it is going to do it justice you're just like captivated um by this performance and but it's so eviscerating to howard um and it's interesting um I mean, I think it's eviscerating in a way that we have anger at ourselves and then project it onto others. Mm -hmm. We feel that someone has done something um, to harm us or has done us wrong in some way when really they haven't necessarily. Um, we just don't want to, you know, kind of look at the full picture um, or we don't have a context of the whole picture. And so she really goes in on him and is like you won't give me the life that i deserve and you are being selfish and not thinking about me and thinking about the life we could have and but it quickly kind of turns and it's like however I am going to play this role for you. I'm going to be the wife 
that you want. I'm going to try and we will stay here on the farm and I will commit myself to this. So I, I wonder if, you know, thinking about the monologue and everything that she goes in to, if there's other aspects of like, maybe what is going on as a result of, you know, the pandemic, that maybe some of those things, like you said, that had been there previously, but were just kind of taking shape. Um, you know, if you wanted to speak a little bit about what that kind of, sure. what some of that monologue kind of so, gives us a glimpse to. I guess for me, like I see the pandemic in this movie is like much more in the background than the foreground, like the way the lens I view this movie through, like it's there. It's definitely an influence on the action, but I have it much more, much less in the foreground. Um, how I view her monologue at the end is she is kind of almost like she's kind of doing narrative therapy with herself. Like she's telling her story <laughs> and she's the protagonist in her story. And she is also at that point kind of like sussing out what her options are, because by the end of this movie, she really has two options. One of those options is the one she chooses. She takes she finally sees some of the wisdom in her mother's advice and that like life is not always about searching for something that's going to make you happy, but it's going to be about being happy with what you already have and making the most of it. Yeah. So she finally sees some pearls of wisdom um, in that advice. And she decides like she's going to play the part of the dutiful wife to Howard. And that is obviously the way it goes. The other option she has is that she can completely blow things up. And that anger that she, the unrestrained anger that she took out on her mother, that she took out on the projectionist, that she took out on Mitzi, that she felt like in some way, like they deserve to be punished. And I am going to met out that punishment. She could have done that to Howard as well. Like she's saying in this dialogue, you know, like not only did you show me a glimmer of what my life could, and that is almost the worst part of it. In each out for Pearl, she sees a glimmer of what life could be like with the projectionist. She sees a glimmer of what life could be like if she is able to join the chorus girls. She sees a glimmer of what Howard's life, home life is like when he's not on the farm. And it's always presented to her, but never offered to her. Yeah. Right? She's never able to really take part of it. She could very much have picked up that axe and buried that hatchet right through Howard's skull because he would have been another person in a long line of people that had like shown her some a way things could be better, but has never really offered it to her. And then from there, she could do whatever, like wander the earth like she's Kane and Kung Fu at that point, if like that's what she chose to do. But she chooses the other path because it's maybe because it's the safer of the two paths. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and that's really interesting. Um, you know, like I said, we don't really get a lot about her and Howard's relationship. Um, but I think that that monologue really does, I think, put so much more, I think, meat on that bone so that when he does come home, we understand that there, you know, what kind of connection is there and kind of what, how they're going to forge together. Um, it is interesting, <laughs> though, 
um, to get to the end where Howard comes into the house and there's Pearl and her parents dead in the rotting pig. Um, he obviously looks horrified by what he's seeing. We only get like a moment of it. Um, but it, it is interesting, like you said, to then look at how that relationship change occurs to the point of where we get an X, where he is full force team girl and he is murdering for her. He is, you know, doing everything that he can to support her. Um, so I, I really, um, I think that the the monologue is is really I think great in kind of serving that purpose of giving us a little bit more kind of context. Um, I want to switch gears. You had put in the notes about wanting to talk a little bit about which we referenced earlier. You know the fact that this is a German immigrant family, um, and talk about <laughs> Ruth's experience as. Um, an immigrant, and I don't know if you wanted to kind of talk about what you what you shared in the notes because I think it's really I, interesting. I don't have a lot here. It's just, and I don't really have a lot of the historical context of it, except to say that, like, obviously during the uh, 18th century and the early part of the 20th century was a time of like tremendous immigrant growth in the United States, and each time a new wave of like European immigrants came over to the country, um, as did like Asian immigrants as well, they experienced tremendous amounts of racism. So even groups of persons that could seemingly pass uh, for what we would consider like the white Protestant um, cultural part of like what uh, is sometimes defined as America, despite calling it a melting pot, as each wave of immigrant class came over, they experienced tremendous amounts of racism, fear, discrimination. I know in Boston, it was not uncommon to see like Irish need not apply signs placed uh, anywhere, whether it was the mills of Lowell's or um, the industries of like the Boston area. What's making it even more difficult in the case of like Ruth and her family is they are German immigrants at a time when the country is at war with Germany is, you know, part of the evil access. I guess that would be more World War II, but in terms of calling the axis of evil, but like they're at war with uh, the Germans at that point. So there is going to be the potential for, and we've seen it here in the United States. We've seen the, and during World War II, uh, Japanese internment camps along the West Coast. So, you know, we are not a country that is immune to treating uh, not only like immigrants, but also like American citizens with a tremendous amount of mistrust and we do them tremendous harm. There's also that line that Ruth has in here is there's kind of like this sorrow that she has for her homeland. She says to her daughter at one point when, when Pearl is reading the paper, I don't want to hear about any more dead Germans tonight. So there's also a part of her that even though she's come to this 
And I don't know, like, if she came of her own free will, if she basically was just doing it under, well, this is my husband. He says we're going to move here and start a farm. So I guess that's what we're doing. Um, there's probably a large part of her that, like, misses her country. And especially now in that she doesn't really have her husband anymore. The only person she has is a daughter who she hates and fears in equal measure. Yeah. I I think that's all very salient. And, you know, I think to your point about, you know, especially in time periods, reflecting on, you know, the mistrust and how it connects to to racist kind of things happening in the country. I mean, we see that playing out in the pandemic um, with Asian Americans. And so I think it's, you know, <laughs> it's a kind of, make that connect, I thought was was interesting, obviously completely different context, but I thought that that was an interesting kind of uh, uh, thing that, stu- that stood out to me um, in, in really thinking about that um, piece of it. Um, yeah, and I think, um, you know, to your point, I think also just the, you know, when, when you're not connected to your to your homeland, probably a lot of your family. Um, you're reading stories about, you know, the destruction and devastation that's happening. Um, that that all has an impact, and probably I think furthers that sense of isolation. You're really here on your own. Um, you don't have family. You don't have those support systems in place that you can easily kind of connect with and I can't imagine being in Ruth's specific position and navigating that that's so much mm-hmm. and yes she's absolutely cruel um to Pearl and I think maybe some of that is connected to what she has seen of Pearl that we haven't seen before, you know, the cruelty to the animals, um, things, because, you know, she's probably also thinking about it practically, that if Pearl is harming these animals, well, that's their food. Mm-hmm. That's their money. So, um, yeah, lots to think about there. And I'm glad that you threw that in the notes so that we didn't kind of gloss yeah. over it. Um, I want to talk about caregiving, I know we talked uh, quite a bit, but just a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. So obviously caregiving amidst the pandemic has its own um, substantial challenges and working in caregiving, you know, from very early on hearing lots of folks uh, just, you know, call and have these just terrible heart-wrenching stories about being separated from their loved ones. What do they do? Having their loved ones get sick and not being able to be with them. What do they do? The fear of, you know, I have to go back to work, (laughs) but I'm taking care of mom. What do I do? Um, What happens if I get sick and I can't take care of my loved one for a period of time? How is that going to work? All of these little things kind of culminate in a lot of big issues that were, I think, 
really making caregiving such um, a, a challenge amidst the pandemic and caregiving is a challenge under the, you know, the quote unquote best of circumstances. Um, and obviously we see that play out here. We've talked a little bit about that, you know, the isolation of caregiving in and of itself and then the, you know, how uh, caregiving in the pandemic cuts you off from other resources that you may have easier access to. Um, the additional fear around your loved one's health. But one thing that also stood out to me, one thing that I think more and more folks are really giving voice to are some of the difficult emotions that come with caregiving. A lot of times it's put on a smile, do what you have to do. Don't let anyone know how you're struggling, not just struggling from a logistical standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint. Um, you know, one thing that I hear from caregivers all the time is, am I a bad person because I am angry? Am I a bad person because I'm resentful? Am I a bad person because I feel, I felt relief? when my loved one passed and I, you know, I felt relief obviously because, you know, their pain and uh, difficulties had, you know, ended and, and I could feel a relief in that, but I'm relieved now that I get more of me back. Um, and the answer is no. This is, something that all caregivers experience. And you have, you know, Ruth's line saying, you know, well, we're both without a husband, aren't we? We're both alone. So it's, you know, I think it underscores also that change that can happen in relationships that are also really, uh, you know, part of that difficult uh, emotional piece of if you're caring for a spouse, um, you know, it does, it does alter that relationship. And you have partners that feel angry about that. Like, I don't have my wife anymore. I don't have my husband. I don't have my partner. I have now someone that I just have to care for. Um, So I, I felt that it was, uh, you know, that acknowledgement I thought was really, really great. And of course, you know, having Pearl be really active in her father's care, obviously taking care of the, the homestead, the work is a lot for two people in and of itself. It would be a lot for three people, I think. But when it's just basically Ruth doing a lot shared with Pearl, um, you know, again, it's altering a relationship. It's changing some relationship dynamics between Pearl and her father. We don't really get a sense of what that relationship was like. Um, but, you know, I think that there's probably, you know, we see her kind of like pinch him uh, once. I think there's probably a little bit of that bubbling anger um, and resentment. And she, instead of dealing with it in perhaps a, a healthy manner, uh, she does not. So 
Um, those are really just a couple of the things that I wanted to underscore. And Mike, I know you also put it a note in here about how they speak about the father like he's not even in the room. Yeah, that's what really hit me on this rewatch was how often Ruth talks about her husband like he's not even there or like he's not cognizant of what is going on in the room and you see the impact on his face like uh you you see how often in this movie he looks hurt or wounded or afraid um i think it's matthew sunderland who's playing the role of the father and all he really can do is move his eyes a little bit or slightly change his expression but he does it really well and it shows a lot whether it's the bathtub scene where you see how uncomfortable he is being in front of his like naked daughter yeah who she is like very much creating like a sexual situation in here and is almost trying to seduce seeing if she can seduce her father who is kind of helpless like there is literally nothing that he can do um i and you also the scene where ruth says like i wanted a husband i i signed up to be his his wife not his mother and mm -hmm. it cuts to him after and he's very wounded by that because like there's literally nothing he can do and i think i you 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 mentioned it as like being in the caregiving industry and talking to other caregivers we it's often the people that we are charged to care for are spoken about like they're not even present and don't have any agency. I see that in schools with students where like very personal information about students is discussed in front of them without any conversation or acknowledgement that they're even there. And uh, I think that's one of the things that really stood out. And even how Ruth treats Pearl, I think I've said this prior, she treats her like a small child. Like when the eight sense is missing, she immediately she takes away her supper and sends her to her room. Um, she kicks her out of the home. Like the way she talks to her, she treats her very much like a very small child. And Pearl is a grown ass adult who's married. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, the I think it's you know, one of the aspects of caregiving that is also a challenge is balancing those other relationships, maintaining other relationships. Because we've talked about how it impacts your relationship with your loved one as a caregiver, but it's impacting every other relationship within that family dynamic mm -hmm. often. Yeah. Um, because, you know, kids um are having to uh, chip in help um and it can be really really hard uh to kind of strike that balance with everything um i often talk to kids that are maybe like failing some classes or not doing that well in school mm -hmm. and you hear them described as like lazy like that's a word that gets thrown out a lot so Oftentimes, like I'll sit down with them and we'll do some executive functioning um, skill management because that's a hard skill, especially in middle school to develop. And I'll ask like a kid, like, so what is your day like after school? 
And what you come to find out after like literally a three minute conversation is from like 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. You have 12 year olds that are in charge of like the caretaking for maybe an elder relative, like a grandmother that might be infirm or Mm -hmm. younger siblings. Like they have to make sure that they have food. They have to make sure that they're in the home safe. They have to do dishes and laundry and trash. They have to like give maybe get like the kids ready for bed and you find out like that's on top of like already spending seven hours in school. So by the time, you know, mom comes home and I say mom and not dad, because honestly, in a lot of the families I work with, like there is no dad in the picture, like nine out of 10 times, mom is the only adult in the home. Yeah. Um, by the time 8 PM rolls around, they have been working since 7 a.m. and they've been doing like unpaid labor as children. And then on top of that, they're expected to be alert, awake, and focused on school. Yeah. No, the I think that oftentimes, even if a you know, we don't think about especially younger kids as taking on a role of caregiving within that family. They often are, and they're often kind of doing things to provide respite to, you know, that other parent or parents, because even outside of that, you have, you know, maybe it's parents that are caring for a grand, you know, the grandparent, and that can take a toll too. It's all, it's all kind mm-hmm. of interconnected. And one thing, I guess, to, I guess, kind of round out some thoughts about Mm -hmm. caregiving is that one thing that we often don't talk about is how, you know, within a pandemic, um, it's not just folks that are entering into the pandemic as family caregivers, but there are a number of folks who left the pandemic, even though, you know, we're now just in a different stage of the pandemic. you know, they're, they're new caregivers because, you know, their loved one has long COVID and needs some additional support or, you know, had issues that, um, you know, came up during the pandemic, um, whether it be COVID or not, mm-hmm. um, and find themselves new in that role. And so, you know, caregiving in the pandemic is, is also interesting in that way and how it shapes that experience because you have folks that are caregiving without a lot of access, without, um, you know, a lot of that support in place that we often um, take for granted in assuming is there. Putting more, I think, you know, to what you were saying, kind of more on the shoulders of the family and of the kids. Yeah. Could I just mention two things really quick about not, not tied into the caregiving a little bit? Mm-hmm. Is number one, I think about like the after Pearl kills her mother or basically sets her mom on fire and throws her down the steps, leaving her to die yeah. in like the basement. She leaves, and the rest of the night, the dad is in the kitchen and he has to hear the sounds of his like wife thump trying to thump up the stairs all night, and there's like nothing he can do, and like he's mentally alert 
Like there's nothing wrong with his mind. He knows everything going on around him yeah. and how like what a prisoner you are in your body at that point. But also you mentioned earlier, like the red dress that Pearl wears for her addition. That's, and there's the other dress she tries on early that suggests that prior to coming to this country, that like Ruth maybe had a very similar life to like Mitzi and her mom and had to give that up. Because where do those really nice dresses come from? They certainly don't come from Mitzi's mother. Like she's not going to accept those. Those would be immediately like shredded for scrap and rags. So it's a suggestion that at some point Ruth had a more glamorous or more affluent life. And she's given that up for this life of hardship. And she's yeah. held on to these dresses as almost like that scene where she's like sobbing. Um, you know, like Ruth is pretty monstrous, but you can see how the monster was created. Yeah, and that's such such a good point. And I think an observation that I haven't, you know, in listening to other people talk about this film, I think a lot of people don't don't hit on that. Is that, you know, her mom has some pretty some pretty like fancy clothes like fancy clothes and you're right this isn't something that would be hand-me-downs from you know mitzi's family or from probably anyone um so again going back to that sense of isolation and and kind of what's going on in ruth's mind that separation from the life that she had um in germany we have no context of that. And again, also connected to, we don't really know like what her, you know, we have no idea of when her husband's um, illness, uh, you know, began its progression. So there's a lot of stuff that we don't really know. Right. Um, and I think to, to what you're saying, it helps us kind of understand that going from this to this, even though we don't necessarily know all the details, we see that toll on Ruth. We understand, you know, just like Pearl, I think, wants her mom and the projectionist to understand her suffering. I kind of think her mom is the exact same. Hmm. And that I want you to understand what I'm going through, what I've gone through. And I'm going to do it by being cold, callous, and harsh. Um, yeah, that's, that's, um, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Um, so as we begin the process of kind of closing out here, of course, I want to talk about kind of the more broader, um, mental health themes that we see in, in Pearl. Um, you noted in the notes, a couple of specific mm -hmm. diagnoses. So I don't know if you kind of want to to guide us there. Yeah, I always do this. Like when I watch, when we're, oh, we're talking about mental health. So when I look at this, I look at Pearl as someone that might have like antisocial personality disorder or maybe histrionic personality disorder. And I know that the latter is pretty controversial because it's almost exclusively given to women as a diagnosis. But there are a lot of traits that you see Pearl exhibit here that would make this it would make you pause and say this is possibly what we're looking at. 
um, like Pearl very much wants to be the center of attention. It's mm-hmm. not just that like she wants to travel with this dancing troupe because she would be able to leave the farm, but she very much feels like she's a star. And you see that's when she's that's that heartbreaking scene on stage when they basically break her down. They're like they basically tell her like you're not special. We need someone younger, prettier, mm-hmm. and blonde. Like there's, we already had the line. I think the director says is like, we already have enough girls like you in our troop. Meaning like you're a, to him, Pearl is a dime a dozen. And Pearl very much wants others to acknowledge like that there is something special about her. Um, you see very like seductive or pr- provocative behavior from persons. I think she fucks a scarecrow people. Uh, am I allowed to swear? Yeah. This? Yeah. yeah. She fucks the scarecrow people. I mean, <laughs> come on. Um, her emotions tend to be pretty shallow and very surface level. Like what you see is what you get. Um, she's very dramatic in her emotions and she's very dramatic in her actions as well. And you see her turn on people very quickly. Like uh, her mother, it's a long time coming. So then that death is almost accidental. Like they start tussling with one another. But you see with like the projectionist, the minute she senses he's gone cold on her she does a complete 180 on him and that kind of like coy almost submissive behavior around him she and he's very honest with her he tells her like you are scaring me like he's like not like oh no we'll meet up later and then he's like okay cards on the table you're frightening me right now with your behavior and she just starts screaming at him like murder aside Mm-hmm. she's terrifying in that yeah. moment uh, because she can't see what she's doing. And she also like, they've spent two days together and one night being intimate with one another mm-hmm. and she's married, but she is already entertaining notions of the two of them running off to Europe and living a vagabond life together. Yeah. Which he's never promised her. He's like said, you should go do this. Not, you should come do this with me. He's never offered her that, but she has already built this relationship in her brain. So you see with histrionic personality disorder, what you find is someone who typically latches onto a person very quickly and then blows it up in spectacular fashion. That's, that's pretty, I think spot on. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially with that that moment in the barn where she realizes that she's kind of, well, I think that's also the moment where he's like, uh, you mentioned a dog. A dog, yeah. And yeah, and I think that to, when I've heard other people kind of talk about the film, you know, they'll say, well, he's kind of a, a creep. I don't necessarily think so. I think he's just a dude. He's an opportunist. Yeah, he's an opportunist, but he's not like, I don't think that he takes advantage of Pearl. I think he's very forthcoming with her in a lot of ways um, to say like, uh, I've got to go. This has been great. Um, See ya. Right. And he only does that because he has seen the rotting pig on the front step. Like yeah. this rotted maggot infested pig. And then he meets the father 
Yeah. And he's like, whoop, not ready for this. And then with the thumping, he catches her in her lie. So mm-hmm. all of those things have now added up to the point where he's no longer comfortable being with her. And that's fully within his rights at that point. Yep. He is he's he's got a nice story to tell the boys, basically. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't think I'd want any part of that, you know. So, no, and I do. It's me, a goth. I mean, yeah, I mean, I could forgive a lot. I could probably forgive a lot. I mean, seriously, I've, I like I said, I've had the morning after experiences, and I've done worse. <laughs> we'll trade stories. We'll trade yeah. some stories off air. Um, no, I think that's really interesting, and I love being able to think about like how that actual diagnosis or, you know, specific, uh, you know, diseases and, and representations of this and, and you know, um, I guess to kind of uh, put a pin on that, what what would a treatment or how, oh, how, how mean, does someone manage, um, manage? Poorly, usually yeah. poorly. Um personality disorders are really hard sometimes because when you have depression or anxiety um a lot of times like you acknowledge it like there is a problem like the the problem there is not that the problem is me that's not an accurate way of saying it but there's something that resides within me that i need to like externalize and deal with and move on and get better from what you often see with like personality disorders more specifically like antisocial and narcissistic the problem is not them the problem is everybody else it's hard to even acknowledge that there is one sometimes so it would take a lot of work on like self-actualization a lot of meditation and mindfulness a lot of examining patterns in relationships and seeing like in recognizing those patterns and then maybe like it's almost like a choose your adventure like well, when this comes up again, like, how are we going to make different choices, smarter choices, healthier choices, choices that respect the rights and boundaries of others? So it's a lot of work. It would take a lot of time and, and effort. And again, it's a diagnosis that typically gets placed on women. So it's also everything I'm saying right now could also be, cons- you know, might be a bit exaggerated or unfair as well so it could very much well be that like Earl has been manipulated by others in her life to the point that she's like so frustrated this is how she is acting out like she's tried being the dutiful wife or the dutiful daughter and now she's going to take what she wants by ever whatever means because like playing by their rules hasn't done her anything any favors yeah. And do you so, see I don't know. I guess like at the end of the day, like it would be it's 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 can be difficult. Yeah. Um I guess going off of all of that you've said, both in terms of, you know, personality disorders, kind of what they look like and talking through, you know, at least some approach of management and treatment. Mm-hmm. Um do you see kind of a through line of Pearl here in this film, younger Pearl to the Pearl that we see in X? 
not i see more the character uh mia goth plays and i'm drawing a blank on her name in x now like what her character's name is the two are almost max that's right max hence the third movie like the two are almost parallel characters to one another like maxine's whole thing as well is like then the difference being like maxine is very much like i am going to be a star no matter what Mm -hmm. and the difference is everybody is telling maxine they see those star qualities in her like they are pretty much trying to hop on the maxine bandwagon yeah right from jump street because they know they can ride her coattails to something better than what they already have and Pearl in X is much more of a cautionary tale telling her that like your beauty is going to fade. Your talent is going to fade. All of the things that people say are special about you are eventually going to fade away. And this is what you're going to be left with. Um, so I think that maybe is the through. And that's why I think like watching first X and then Pearl deepens like the understanding of the of x like you get a much better understanding of like i think maxine's character than you do yeah. with pearl's character because like there's a huge jump in howard and pearl's relationship from the end of this movie to the beginning of x sure. you almost need like one more you almost need like a fourth movie like one more movie set in between 1918 and 1978 yeah I think given that trajectory, I think that would be a very interesting film that I would be on board with. Um, yeah, I, I I can kind of agree. Obviously, I think all of this really does seem at the connections between Maxine and Pearl, both young Pearl growing up in uh, <laughs> a kind of a strict household uh, because Maxine grew up in an evangelical setting uh, with the preacher father and felt, I think, stifled probably in that environment. So um, I do like that this really does kind of, uh, you know, put put kind of some finishing touches on all those comparisons and then obviously the bibs. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> I guess that's kind of the discussion around Pearl um, you mentioned the third movie, Maxine, coming out. Are you excited? Oh, hell yes. Yeah. yeah I, I'm always excited for a new Ty West movie. And I'm very excited for another Mia Goth jam. So, I mean, she's just... She's on fire. Yeah. Watch her in anything. Yeah. She's on fire. I've loved her since Nymphomaniac um, and thought she was. So, like, if you want a movie and I talk about this movie as often as I can just because it seems it's like a very different film Mm -hmm. um but I really like Emma period Mm -hmm. uh with Anna Taylor-Joy and Bill Niley and Mia Goth um and she is incredible in it she is very sweet and kind and cute um and just a really kind of bubbly and sweet character so if you want a delightful change of pace of the mia goth kind of typical uh character she she's very very good very funny um in that as well so i 
I recommend that. But yeah, Infinity Pool um, just came out earlier this year and incredible. Um, yeah. She's... That's, that's my pick for top genre film of the year, uh, the quarterway point. And I don't know what's going to knock it unseated at this point because that movie is... All I want in life is for like Mia Goth to walk me around on a leash and tell me I'm a good boy. Really same same it's all i want small life goals yeah even if it's just a clone i'll take a clone mm-hmm. yeah god um <laughs> great so we've talked about pearl and mike thank you so much for being here thank really, you really going over i think some i think amazing and interesting stuff related to mental health one of the things that i always make sure to kind of frame with this podcast is I try not to veer into mental health. That's not kind of my expertise. Um, I'm, you know, got some experience and training enough to be ridiculous, um, but not as informed. So I really wanted to bring in um, someone that knew what they were talking about to not only hit on these, but, you know, I think it's important to also, um, you know, frame that, you know, mental illness um, and mental health issues often are treated, have the same kind of stigmas and impact a person's day-to-day life in very similar ways as physical disabilities. And, you know, the approach to treatment and therapies often are similar. Um, Folks with disabilities are much more likely to have things like depression, anxiety um as well so um you know i think it's important to always kind of make that connection with mental health as part of a disability experience um and so i'm i'm so so thankful that you could take some time uh to chat but i want to now have you uh plug the the spaces where people can hear can hear your dulcet tones sure uh, so I currently co-host two shows. There is the Pod and the Pendulum, which we are coming up on our fourth year uh, this spring, later this spring, which is kind of crazy to me. Uh, we are a show that covers horror movie franchises. So like later this year, like once Maxine comes out, like these, this movie X and Maxine will all be on the table. Like we'll cover each of those in a separate episode. So we typically dive into like the background of each movie, like, you know, who was behind it, how it came together, like what happened behind the scenes. And as well as like, we try to like talk about the context of when it came out as well. Like where were genre films at? Because I think that's always fascinating. Um, And then we kind of just like dive into each of the themes of whatever movie we're covering. We tend not to be very plot based. Like you're not going to get like recaps and we're not usually aren't going to do like a point by point dissection of the, of the plot of the movie for two hours, but we tend to go long uh, and we tend to cover like anything like social or political or mental health or Mm -hmm. just how it feels. when we kind of like watch that movie and we've assembled quite a big crew uh, over the past year, like we've, I've had um, co-hosts like Jerry and Lindsay that stepped in for the first and second year. 
uh, and we always have guests on, but now like Nicole, you're part of that team along with like uh, Ari from Ghouls Magazine and Steven from Disenfranchised and Brian from Movies for Life and Devon from the Spectre Cinema Club, Jessica from uh, We Who Walk Here and Rachel Reeves from Losers Club. All of y'all are like regular co-hosts along with like special guests that we have had on. And, you know, it's been like really fun conversations with everybody every week on these movies. Like I love what everyone brings to the table for them. So that is the pod and the pendulum and you can find us on apple on spotify google anywhere you get stitcher anywhere you get your pods um we're currently like as soon as i'm done here in about 10 minutes i'll be logging on and we'll be recording our last episode on the purge series where rachel and i are going to talk about the tv show uh, we're going to talk about the two series which is the first for us we've never covered a tv series um we just posted on Scream 6. It is insane. It's our fastest growing episode ever. It might make wow. our top 10 uh, by like the end of the summer based on the pace that it's at. Like we've really seen a lot of new listeners. Yay. Uh, my other show is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, which is specifically on horror movies on mental health. Uh, which I co-host with uh, Jen Jen Ferratu from the Losers Club and uh, un, uh, Lara Undersall from uh, the Halloweenies podcast. Although Jen and Lara have taken a bit of a hiatus from the show after 150 episodes, mm-hmm. it kind of just need a little bit of a break because it can be a fairly heavy show at times. So we all have a pretty loose sense of humor but we tend to cover heavy topics so like they're taking a bit of break and i am trying to keep it running until they come back and we'll see see how long that lasts before i'm like okay we've had a good run um but we do similar to what you do with this show like we pick mental health topics and talk about like the causes of them the treatment of them uh, where we see them, what sort of biases there might be in the mental health field. And then we um, kind of like talk about the movie and how it makes us feel and the themes we see throughout. So I'm sure Pearl is one we'll address at some point um, just because I want to, I love, I could talk Ty West movies all day. Yeah. So that is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast. I'm kind of surprised there aren't more shows like this one like i have not found a lot of other shows that specifically cover horror movies and mental health like there's terror talk but they've kind of moved a lot towards true crime uh there's mary star who's a freudian um psychologist who has her own show as well which is phenomenal like she's brilliant um but there's like not a ton of horror movie and psychology podcast like it's there's like you would figure there'd be more Reese's peanut butter cups with the two of those topics together so for sure give us us a shot yeah absolutely and uh yeah I've uh you know mentioned you I mentioned both pods uh um here I, I think that both are just so amazing I'm glad that you know they're going so strong because I think you know at least for me both were um 
you know, early on in the pandemic, I was really looking for film podcasts to listen to because I missed having conversations with people about movies. And like these were two that just really, um, I don't know, just made me feel like I was around just the best people, the mm -hmm. kindest people, the funniest people, just really um, great conversations. So yes, definitely check those out. And I'll have links in the show notes for folks if you want to do that. Like Mike said, available wherever. Hey, wherever you got this podcast, you can get those podcasts too. Um, so um, all that will be in the show notes. But yes, Mike, thank you again. Thank you. And it's, as you know, always a pleasure to speak. And that's why we have you. It's one of our regular crew. So if you want to hear more of Nicole, Got to hop over to the pod and the pendulum. Oh, absolutely. I I think I mentioned in the last episode that I had been on to uh, sing the praises of the Purge films. I did submit my ranking and it was so hard because it was very much like these are beautiful, beautiful babies mm -hmm. and I cannot rank them. It is so hard because I love them all so much. Um, but yes, uh, the purchase has been incredible, but I, I, I do love with the pod and the pendulum being able to really take a journey through a franchise. And I love that you're doing the purge series because lots of people don't even realize that it exists. You know, what's amazing is how popular they've been. Like the numbers went through the roof when we started the post, um, we went from Texas Chainsaw to Phantasm to Purge and like Purge is like right up there with the Texas Chainsaw series okay. in terms of like people listening. So we're really excited about that. It's kind of like those movies are huge. Yeah. No, absolutely. And yeah. I'm, I just love hearing that you, you're getting just lots of listeners. I think that's wonderful. I do too. I think that's great too. Because <laughs> we do the show like for this, like what we're doing right now. Like we do it to talk with our friends. Like I do it because my friends are like so scattered everywhere. Yeah. Uh, that I don't get to see them as much as I would like to at this point. Like it can be, it's a challenge to get out and see them. Um, and this is like, I'm a very social person. I'm pretty extroverted. Um, so it's a just a chance for me every week multiple times a week now to talk to like i have three recordings this weekend it's just a chance to like talk to different people that i really enjoy talking to and it's fun um and i hope our listeners think so i hope your listeners think so otherwise they're like someone get this guy to shut the fuck no. up um, no i i'm so so thankful that you uh could be on to to talk and you know consider this a standing invitation anytime that an idea crosses your mind like this would be a good movie for nicole to cover over at bodies of war and i would Absolutely. love to chat about it with her you have complete uh open door policy for that because All i right. i love it so that is going to wrap it up for this episode uh, thank you all, anyone who is listening. And of course, a huge thank you to the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad for being the home 
of Bodies of Horror and lots of other amazing shows. Um, if you haven't listened to the coverage of season four of You, uh, it's so fun and amazing. They are delightful episodes and just always good stuff on the feed. So if you like this show and you haven't listened to any of the other amazing stuff, uh, give it a listen. Um, there's also uh, a really great kind of Hellraiser, uh, I guess, kind of historical dive uh, with Joe. So um, please, 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 uh, you know, make sure that you are subscribed and uh, tune in to to listen to those shows. But thank you again. And until next time. Scream Pod Squad.